Welcome to another episode of Racial Equity in Richmond, a component of the Richmond Racial Equity Essays Project. We're here today with Laura Dobbs and Stephen Wade. Um, and again, my name is Ebony Walden. In this series, is just asking Richmonders their thoughts on how do we achieve racial equity in our city and in our region. Um, so excited to have you two here today and excited to jump into the conversation and your perspectives on this important topic for our nation and our city. So if I could start with just asking you guys to quickly introduce yourselves, your name, obviously, you know, what do you do in the daytime? And that could include, or nighttime, right? So that could include, <laughs> we have multiple hats that we put on, not just the day, like your affiliations too. And um, what was the other thing that I wanted to ask? And how long you've been living in this area, sorry. Great. Well, I'll, I'll go first. I'm really, really glad to be here and to have been asked, Ebony. So excited to be a part of this awesome project, thinking about um, this great city and how to make it greater, how to make it more just, more um, racially equitable. My name's Stephen Wade. I'm um, from Alexandria, Virginia. I lived in Richmond for about four years now. Uh, I feel like my full-time job is a father. I have two little kids who I love and drive me crazy. I'm a husband, a resident of the fifth. Um, I work during the day at the Virginia Department of Social Services, working on substance use disorder, trying to better support families. And then on the side, I am the vice president of the board of the partnership for um, smarter growth. I have a deep background in affordable housing uh, policy and advocacy um, over 20 years career, as well as working in health equity in Northern Virginia, DC, in Southeast Michigan, and now here in Richmond. So really, really glad to be here and to chat about what I think are some real opportunities for the city. Oh, lovely. And then just for those who don't know what uh, Partnership for Smarter Growth does, could you give us a little plug? Very well. I should have done that myself. Partnership for Smarter Growth, small, um, primarily volunteer board led uh, nonprofit here in the city, been here for a number of years, primarily focused on the intersection of housing, transportation and the environment. Um, so working on kind of trying to protect um, the environment through all kinds of mechanisms, limit um, auto oriented development out on the fringes of our region, while encouraging in, in encouraging development, but encouraging development that, that benefits the community, that's equitable, that's fair, that serves the community. So it's both a, a kind of try to limit things happening on the fringe that are further separating us um, and bring us to, to bring more healthy, equitable, greener, fair development in the uh, city and inner jurisdictions. I love that. You know, my background is in urban planning. So I'm like, yes to all. Pl planner <laughs> nerds unite. I know. Sometimes I want to admit about planners, sometimes I don't. Well, I can totally see that as well. Um, uh, don't tell anybody your urban planet parties and they'll tell you <laughs> all the things that are wrong with the city and how bad traffic is. So uh, I would love to uh, introduce yourself, Laura. Sure, my name is Laura Dobbs and I'm an attorney with the Virginia Poverty Law Center. Uh, the Poverty Law Center is a statewide support center for all the legal aids across the state. We also advocate um, on a variety of civil issues affecting low-income Virginians from healthcare to public benefits, consumer law, and I specifically work on housing, landlord-tenant issues. 
Um, and I wear a few different hats. I do lobbying, trying to get better laws and protections for tenants, um, tenant education. I feel like your rights are only good as your ability to know what those rights are and enforce them, um, as well as um, uh, connecting different tenant advocates to share best practices and training other housing attorneys across the state. Um, I'm a Richmond transplant, so I'm originally from North Carolina, grew up in Monroe, North Carolina, just outside of Charlotte. Um, and I've been in going on my third year here in Richmond, Virginia. Um, you know, when I initially came to the Poverty Law Center, um, it was for a project focused on addressing the high rates of eviction in Central Virginia, uh, Richmond and Petersburg. Um, now my focus is much more statewide. Okay, lovely, great. So I, I, it'll be an interesting conversation because you are, I think that you might be the newest, both of you folks to Richmond that I've seen. So I'd love to en engage uh, Richmond through your eyes because I think both perspectives of, you know, the, the, the come here and that have been here in a long time. But um, you both do interesting work and sort of cut on some of my passion areas around about housing and planning and just making sure people have what they need to thrive from that basic housing stability perspective. But tell me what got you into to your work? Is there a pivotal moment or experience that you can point us to that, that really got you into the work that you do and that you feel passionate about? And if so, what was that? I'd like to just get an idea of who people are before we get into their opinions about things. Laura, do you want to go first? Sure. Um, so I, you know, I grew up in the South, different state, but, you know, there's a lot of similarities. The where I grew up was a community sort of split in two. It was a, you know, other side of the racetrack kind of town where one side you had the wealthy white families, and on the other side you had, um, you know, poor black and Latino families, and a lot of immigrants lived there. My high school was like mashing those two cultures together, and so on a day to day basis, seeing how those prejudices play out amongst teachers, other students, how they treat each other based on, you know, the brand of t-shirt you're wearing or the color of your skin. Um, and I think one of the things that really drove home those prejudices is an incident that happened in a math class where the teacher told um, a Latino student, go back where you came from. And all the Latino students in the high school decided to protest to try to get disciplinary action against this teacher. And so they started wearing white t-shirts to school every day and during lunch went out in front of the school and protested. Um, the school responded by uh, deeming anywhere wearing a white t-shirt as a member of a gang. And at the end of the week called everyone to the office and gave them citations. And I didn't have the legal knowledge or context of like, you know, the written rules of why this is wrong. I just knew instinctively that this is pretty messed up. Um, fast forward to getting into my legal career, I started off doing voting rights. And I was working with a lot of different disenfranchised communities on voting rights issues. But as getting into those conversations, seeing that it's just one of so many that exist at the same time, such that, you know, depending on your zip code, it affected everything from, uh, you know, your the health of the environment, um, quality of the schools, quality of the housing, the, you know, wealth gap, the health gap. Um, and so these were citizens thinking particularly of this town and uh, like Charles, Louisiana, they're trying to deal with redistricting. Um, 
But at the heart of that, the issues they were trying to address was environmental racism. You know, schools that are still segregated, probably more segregated than they were 50 years ago. Um, and, you know, housing inequities. So really that's what drove home that yes, voting is important, but unless you're addressing those underlying needs, um, those other things aren't going to fall into place. So then I pivoted to uh, working in the area of housing. Wow, that was quite the powerful experience and crazy, kind of crazy in high school, but that, that activism um, in response to that um, was also amazing too. That gives us a, a good idea of who you are and where you're coming from. That was great. Thank you, Laura. What about you, Stephen? Yeah, yeah. Thanks for sharing, Laura. That is super interesting. And I guess I have, I've got to go back to high school a little bit too. I um, what went to Alexandria, so I went to what was called T.C. Williams High School, just changed in the last month to, I think, Alexandria City High School, T.C. Williams. I haven't done the research, but I, I think a racist superintendent um, that we had up there. So, um, but One having, of my colleagues went there. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of connections. And people probably also know T.C. Williams because of Remember the Titans. So if you choose to believe Disney, then um, you can think about that story. But as someone, and I, I still have a lot of pride in being a, a member of that community, but also it's an extremely diverse community, but extremely segregated as well. You know, it's very clear from who gets put in what programs, who gets into AP classes, where you live in the community. So to kind of go to TC and to live that experience, it's kind of hard to not have your eyes be fairly opened. And as I grew in my knowledge of cities and politics, just thinking about where I even grew up in Alexandria, that I grew up in a neighborhood, in a home that my dad could afford with a government job that I had lived next door to a park. I could walk to my school. You know what? We basically had abolition in my neighborhood. There were no police in my neighborhood. No police ever came to my neighborhood. And so I grew up I, and I had a bunch of friends who lived three blocks away and lived in drastically different environments. And so I came to really quickly appreciate and understand the power of money, of race, of real estate, of school boundaries, of policing, and how all those things um, um, came to, 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 to make who I am today. And then kind of in a slightly more personal front in the last number of years, when I was living up in Michigan and a, a new father due to, I'll, I'll take a little bit of blame for it, but I received a notice of potential eviction. Um, um, and it was shocking and traumatic and terrifying. And, um, not that I've been, not been untouched by those systems, but, um, you know, as someone who worked in housing, been working on housing for 20 years, we weren't really talking about evictions 20 years ago, even though they were happening, no doubt. But I think um, the material and as I've moved into more public health thinking too, just the kind of trauma and the material damage of an eviction, um, especially as we're thinking about housing as a long-term process, developing new housing, new funding for housing, zoning we'll talk about. But the crisis of evictions, the materiality of it, the trauma of it for families and children um, was just really um, jaw dropping and shocking to me. And kind of, um, I had a fire under me, but it definitely relit the fire under me. And now to be in the nation's capital of evictions, um, I think is not something that lets me sit still much at all. So um, that's a little bit of kind of how I got here and yeah. That's why I always ask that, that, that question. People always have such powerful stories that, that we don't know um, why that, what's the fire behind, why they're doing the awesome work um, in the areas that they're working in. So you all are new to Richmond. Like you said, it's the capital of the Confederate, for, former capital of the Confederacy. We're like number two 
an eviction. <laughs> so we gotta we we gotta change our, our reputation here. But what are maybe one or two of the biggest inequities that you see in Richmond in general, but but also in your work? And I, and I know for Stephen, you you kind of working in the child welfare system, but also you know having this great passion about housing. You can talk about either or both or uh, neither one. But what do you see? Maybe one or two or what are the biggest inequities that you see um, in this city or in this region? Go for it, I'll go first on this one. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the one I always go back to is the, the um, particularly with my background a little bit in public health and health equity is the, the life expectancy maps that you see made all over the country now, which is really useful. But as people probably know who are listening to this, we have a 20 year life expectancy gap from um, probably my corner of the fan to across the river or even down the street to be frank. And that's just, you know, morally unacceptable. Um, and life expectancy, I think, is a useful term because it not only signifies the literal, you know, robbing of years of life, um, but it also kind of encapsulates all of these systems that we're talking about from um, the real estate redlining history to which pools get built and rebuilt and which pools don't get rebuilt, um, where bus lines are going, where the police are spending their time in the street and where they're not, where child welfare cases are being pursued and not. All of these things align and contribute to this incredible um, divergence in um, inequity in life expectancy between geographies and races. And then just kind of to, to, to build on that, I've already mentioned evictions, but the great work by the RVA Eviction Lab has really highlighted that it's not only the eviction, the density of evictions is, you know, not only correlated with um, income and neighborhood, but very much correlated with race. And so the data is clear on that. And so from robbing people of their homes to robbing people of their um, years alive, um, to me, are two inequities that are um, critical to address. Absolutely. And, and you hit on it. It's, it's both life and livelihood, right? So, so where you live kind of determines everything. So how long you will live, the, the quality of your housing, your neighborhood services, the quality of your schools, whether uh, public services in general are responsive um, to your needs. So, so absolutely. What about you, Laura? What are your thoughts? So before I moved to Richmond, I talked to um, someone I worked with in the voting rights field who has lived in Richmond for a while. And he said, it's, I, you know, referred to as a former capital of the Confederacy. And he's like, oh, it still is the capital of the Confederacy. And that was like the framing that I had coming to the city. Um, and it definitely feels that way. You know, Stephen talked about the maps of evictions and it overlays exactly where redlining occurred, where uh, the interstate system was built that destroyed historically black neighborhoods and forced people into public housing without any, you know, investment in public housing to make sure that it's still um, a healthy and safe place to live. Um, but as I've, you know, been here also just taking in the context of experience that I've had with working at other legal nonprofits, um, the need to include, you know, voices of dis disenfranchised people and working on the solution. Um, you know, there's an organizer with Legal Aid Justice Center, Omari Al-Qaddafi, and he is the one who taught me that 
um, the people closest to the problem are also closest to the solution. And that is an aspect that I try to take into account every day in my work. And it's something that um, my organization can do better. A lot of other nonprofits can do better. City managers can do better instead of having this sort of ivory tower way to approach these issues. Um, you know, we can come up with great ideas of how to fix all these things, but the people living there should have a say in how to fix it. You know, they probably have a clear understanding of why the temperature in their neighborhood is a good five degrees than it is over in the fan um, and the solutions to that. I think there's a great example of a lesson learned from in Detroit. There is a project to plant trees um, across the city, but at no point did they go and ask the people who live there or do community engagement to see if this is something that they wanted. And so you had a lot of people turn down getting trees planted there just because of past experience they had where the city came and cut down the trees that were previously there, ostensibly to deal with tree disease. But for the residents, it's like, oh, it's because immediately after that, they increased surveillance in our neighborhood and we're getting hounded by the police. Um, so as we're thinking through these inequities, it also has to be an equitable approach to how we uh, come up with the solutions, working with communities so that you know, they're leading that discussion and the solution. Um, that's not easy by any means. And if you're doing that, you have to compensate people for their time mm -hmm. and energy put into it. But I think it's a worthwhile investment. Thanks, Laura. And you've jumped uh, right into solutions. So that's great. So I'm going to ask both of you of like one, I'm asking everybody one sentence. What's your vision for racial equity in Richmond? I'll probably include some of the reverse of the things that you've talked about. And what are some things we can do to get there? So you've hit on and actually, Maybe this, um, I've been talking to a bunch of people and exactly what you said, Laura, is the thing that has come up over and over again. I actually think it's been the bedrock of every conversation or solution that people say, we have to have the people that are most impacted be a part of the solution, right? Engaged early, ongoing, and have be in positions where they can determine the outcome and actually have power, right? So what's your vision? How do we, and how do we get there from your perspective? Yeah, just to build on 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 those points, I think we're I think you guys are both exactly right. I mean, I think my vision is where poor and vulnerable people, people of color, have legitimate political power, um, have legitimate, um, you know, and you know, including unhoused people, non-English speakers, LGBTQ, um, whether that's on council, um, whether that's um, you know strong community organizations that are actually funded and actually doing, you know, day-to-day -day trust building and organizing. Um, but I think the reality is this is a political problem. Um, and I think it's great that we have a lot of organizations like ours as well that is trying to lift up voices, center those voices, decenter our own voices, you know, um, acknowledge expertise where we hadn't in the past. Um, but I think how do we get to a place where we have legitimate political power, legitimate political voice um, for those who have 20 years less of life, for those who are being over surveilled by the police. I'm not hearing those voices in any real political context in terms of resources and material benefits. So I think it is a kind of political, uh, a, a political change of some kind. Absolutely. What about you, Laura? 
Yeah, I think he's really getting like to the point there. Um, you know, thinking specifically in the legal field, um, you know, as an attorney, you have to realize that I'm a gatekeeper of sorts. You know, having access and the specialized knowledge to a very complicated thing that people go to school to get the specialized training, but you know, the law is made by lawyers for the benefit of lawyers, and that keeps certain people out from understanding what the law is, how to access justice in the courts, whether you believe that can be done or not. Um, and so, you know, democratizing the law, um, and that's true not just of the legal field, but also applies in other contexts, whether it comes to urban planning, whether it comes to financial models for being able to buy and afford a house, it goes across every aspect of recognizing the role that we play as gatekeepers and how we can open that up for other people. Because I love that. I have the exact yeah. same conversation the other day when I was like, you know, you know, you know, these conversations, lots of folks I'm talking to are gatekeepers in the community. And how can we use that position to open the gate, not to close it or to, just, to take down the gate? <laughs> yeah. Right? Why do we even have the gate? So I love that you, you, you said that and pointed to that in this you know, the conversation around how do we just have a better and functioning democracy where people who have a true voice in the process and the things that are going to impact their lives. Um, so thank y'all for that. And specifically, I want y'all to talk about, because you all know each other because you worked on a recent housing report. Um, and so talk a little bit about, you know, how you got into that. You know, what, it, what do you feel like the, the biggest takeaways from that uh, were and kind of what can we do with the information that you all uh, gleaned in that process and product? Yes, thanks for, for, for bringing that up. Yeah, you can go to psgrichmond.org uh, and find that um, report. We put out an affordable housing platform, um, PSG, Virginia Poverty Law Center, and Richmond for All put it out together. Um, it's got a number of uh, kind of policy recommendations, and I'll speak to one or two. But, you know, I've been working in housing advocacy outside and inside the system for 20-some years. And so um, coalition building, I think, is critical, as well as having a certain language and focus on key policies. Um, as I've seen, as I talked earlier, evictions not really being on the radar 20 years ago are now much more on the radar. And even it, so in the affordable housing world, there can be challenges because there's a need for wealth building, home ownership for low and moderate families. That's a very legitimate need that Richmond has a, has a, has a, has a bad history with. And there's a lot of groups doing that. Um, but I also, in my thinking around housing in this city and region, with the eviction crisis, life expectancy issues, the, 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 the scale of the need for those at the lowest income in terms of being able to find a safe, healthy, affordable place to live in the city um, is extremely limited. And so we, I really found, we really found that the political conversation, the community conversation was kind of missing the target um, on where we needed to focus our attention in terms of resources, in terms of policies. Um, and so, um, I'll, I guess I'll talk briefly about two that I think are, are, are really critical. Um, I'll talk about zoning briefly and about kind of our public resources. So one thing about zoning, I'm a planner nerd, I'll try not to go too far down the rabbit hole, but I think conceptually, 
you know, the, the, there's a connection between the massive developments happening in Scott's Edition and on, on the Pulse Corridor and the lack of investment in other neighborhoods. Those two are, are politically connected, real estate connected, community connected. Mm-hmm. And so when we, um, as, a, as, as a public, as a community, come forward for a plan for Broad, a plan for Scott's Edition, that's a trust building process where we are generating private value, to be frank, we're, we're generating real estate value based on an expectation that we will get certain material community benefits in return. And I think that trust has been deeply broken. I think that as we are looking as a city that, that, that can grow, that wants to grow, that bringing people to the city is a good thing, but we should not look askew and not understand that new people coming to the city creates a deeper demand for affordable housing. And so really conceptually and policy-wise saying this new development generates a need for housing in another community and those two should be linked in policy. So I I feel strongly as we talk a lot about kind of zoning reforms that can kind of come out of the Richmond 300 plan and things like that. And the one more thing I'll note and then I'll pass it to Laura to add on is um, another resource and opportunity is related to just our public resources public land and public housing in particular. Public land is ours, we own it. It should benefit us to the maximum degree and it should benefit those who have the greatest need. And so as we're moving forward with whether it's massive developments that we might not support or smaller developments or school redevelopments or DMV redevelopments, affordable housing for those of lowest income should absolutely be a priority because it's a public resource that's ours that we get to decide about. And relatedly, public housing. It's, it, it's, it's, a, it's a community that's public. And our treatment of the residents has been absolutely despicable um, in terms of the quality of the housing, the evictions. Um, you know, there should be a one-for-one replacement moving forward. Um, the residents in the community should be treated with respect and dignity. Um, my community, my upbringing was treated with respect and dignity. And so I, I really believe that the same should be happening for public housing that is public and that we should support. So those were two that we really covered that I really believe in. Um, I'll pass on to Laura to add some more context or things she wants to discuss. Laura, before you add on, Stephen, I wanted you to talk just slightly just about zonings, right? So I I understand if like zoning, but like, what do you mean? Are you advocating that we need more multifamily zoning? We need less single family zoning just to kind of conceptualize for people that aren't planners or legal background. What does that mean for you? Yep. Um, So there are complexities because of state law. So I I don't want us to go down a state law and authority route, um, which is we have Laura here as an expert. We can do that for another um, specialized YouTube session, Zoom session. But um, conceptually, and other jurisdictions do this, um, there is... I do think there should be multifamily zoning. We want dense housing near transit. It's better for the environment. It's better for people's health. It generates more revenue for the city. So we are supportive of more intense development in the appropriate places. But we also think there should be opportunities for um, including in other jurisdictions, it's called inclusionary zoning, where they have authority, like in DC, you can require a certain percent of the units are affordable. So that's one strategy. In Virginia, I would suggest that's a that's a much more complicated um, to actually get the units in those buildings. Um, but in a rezoning, the idea being when a developer comes and says, oh, I own a three-story garage in Scott's Edition. Can I rezone this up to 10 stories to get a luxury condos? We'd say, great. 
But in exchange for going from three stories to 10 stories, we either you include some units, or if you don't want to do that, include some units next door in the neighborhood or write us a check. And then we can use that money to then go and fix up the pool at the at, at Gilpin, or we can go that to create a rent supplement program. And so in exchange for a developer voluntarily saying, ooh, I can get seven more stories of private value that's created by the public, public we should be able to say, we would like a check to go into our trust fund or a supplement program or whatever it might be to fund the housing demand that you're generating by creating this development. Absolutely, thank you, thank you for that. Sorry, hopefully that wasn't too wonky, but that's, that's the idea. No, I think you brought it down, I just wanted to because folks say zoning, and I think I know, yeah. everyday person is like, okay, how is that going to impact yeah, yeah. But I think that you broke it down well, but also showed the limitations really of living in uh, Virginia, which is a, a Dillon rural state. So that's that'll, that's even more wonky, but I want to <laughs> <laughs> hear from Laura. Like, what do you have to, to add to that? What nuance, what complementary to the conversation about the report you all did and the, some of the recommendations there? Sure. I mean, I got pulled into this coalition um, as the city was voting on the Richmond 300 plan, which, um, you know, they went and did some public input, you know, during COVID, which makes it really complicated. I think it's the demonstrate of how hard it is to do community engagement. Um, but we received pushback when we sent a letter with recommendations like, oh, well, why do you do this before? But our point is community engagement doesn't stop there. It continues through the entire process as an ongoing commitment not just putting together a draft of a plan. It has to continue through as city council is considering it, as they're putting uh, these recommendations into place. It's not a one-stop shop. It's a commitment through the entire process. And that's what we are acting on. Um, you know, additionally, you know, some of our criticism of the plan is that just wholesale adopted existing industry practices and, you know, Richmond Redevelopment Housing Authorities plans redevelopment without and just saying like oh you know it's we're resigning ourselves it's impossible to uh, adequately produce housing for extremely low income people so those who are making 30 cent per low of uh, the area median income and that's just not true there's so much creative thinking that is other places have already tried and that like i said if you're actually doing deep community involvement that i'm sure those that people have solutions and ideas too. Um, Stephen talked about the idea of a local rent supplement program. That is one way to bridge the gap between um, those sort of subsidies to try to uh, incentivize inclusion of affordable dwelling units, um, and, which really serve people who are between like, you know, 15, 80% of area me median income and those of the lowest means. So a voucher can bridge that gap to make it to where it is the unit that is accessible for someone with a voucher. Um, and that there are restrictions uh, that, you know, limitations because we're a Dillon rule state, uh, which basically means that the city only has authority to act in a way as expressly granted by the General Assembly. And the General Assembly has put certain limitations um, on how development can occur, how they can structure property tax programs and incentives. That said, um, there's a lot of vocal room within there of creative solutions that other localities have figured out that surely we also can do as a city uh, to address our deep, deep need for housing across you know, all income levels, but especially for low income folks. You know, he touched on, Stephen touched on you know, the redevelopment of public housing. 
Um, you know, they're trying to put people on vouchers and expecting them to go find housing in the city, but there's just not enough affordable housing and there's not enough support um, for those residents and securing that housing on, you know, having that security deposit to be able to get into unit in the first place. And that's something that, um, you know, if you're going to be demolishing this public land, turning it into a public-private partnership, you need to have a deeper commitment and support of those residents that you're kicking out. Yeah, I love that. I love that like, you all were, you know, pushing the envelope of like, these are commendable, but I think that we can do better as a city. We can clearly do better as a state, particularly for, I think that once you probably get 50 and below um, area media income, right? It gets really, really difficult to, to serve that, right? And so that's not that we should, we shouldn't serve that. That means it's difficult and we need to put more time and energy and resources to, to be more creative and innovative around that. So I love that you all were kind of pushing the envelope and the kind of the status quo on these things and saying, yes, these are great commitments, but how can we do more? How can we be more creative and innovative? And how can we meet the needs of people that are falling through the cracks, right? If they're, they're, regular everyday middle-class folks are struggling to find affordable housing, like housing prices in my neighborhood have skyrocketed, right? So what do you think it's going to be like for people that make a, a small percentage of, of what we deem like middle-class enrichment? So no, I think that's a really good point. And just to, just to kind of add and kind of circle up with what we said before, um, to serve people the lowest income is more expensive. Um, it takes more resources. And, you know, we've also been working closely with Richmonders involved in strengthening our communities. risk. They've been beating the drum for the housing trust fund, which is one of the critical tools um, needed to build a supply of affordable housing. But um, I would suggest the city council has not committed to that at any kind of commensurate level. And to really serve low income folks, we're going to need something like a local rent supplement program, which can essentially pay people's rent. I mean, this is what's going on around the city as we're figuring out low barrier, no barrier ways to get cash in people's hands that if they need to pay their rent, they gotta pay their rent. If they gotta pay childcare, they gotta pay their childcare. If they gotta pay a car bill, they can pay their car bill. But this is, and so I think that goes back to my point of, this is a political question. You know, we are um, spending 90 some million dollars a year on our police force. Um, and spending, you know, one or two on our trust fund. Um, we are, you know, we probably need to raise revenue in other ways. Um, and so these are real political questions and that, it, you know, if we are serious, if we're not serious, that's fine. But if we're serious, we, we see the price tag and we look at our budget and think about where we're currently spending money and what could change or where we find new money. And so I just think that is a real um brass tax political conversation that our system does not quite be seem to be up to at the moment so yeah, yeah. highlighting that I think that's that's a really important point that lots of these problems they're hard and they're costly but they're actually <laughs> doable we don't we don't have the political will to actually do them or we don't want to make the, ch the changes and the sacrifices and the tough conversations that it will require Laura did you want to say something yeah and underscoring is you know a point that Stephen made earlier about treating people with dignity so after we hear politicians say like, oh, we need house, like housing for, you know, firemen and teachers. And it's like, yeah, that's true. But they, um, you know, low wage earners are deserve equal di dignity, also deserve healthy, safe housing that is affordable. So why are we making this unnecessary to distinction to divide people? They all need housing. You know, our low wage earners 
our city employees, you know, they're doing some of the toughest jobs in the city. And so, you know, they deserve that respect as well. Um, you know, I, this is going on in Charlottesville right now when they're dealing with their, you know, zoning where you have homeowners who seem to think that they should have more of a say than rights than renters. Um, and that's just not true. Property, you know, property owners shouldn't have any more of a say than renters who live in the city. Uh, everyone should be treated equally because we all have an interest in ensuring that, you know, we have a safe place to live. We have transportation to get to our jobs. We have, you know, a good school to send our kids to access to healthy food that benefits everybody, not just homeowners. Absolutely. Well, thank y'all so much. This has been a really cool and interesting conversation. I love the, you, you guys definitely brought a unique uh, perspective to the show. It's about time for us to wrap up, but want to give you all, you know, five, 10 seconds, you have any, anything to say or to encourage the audience as we close this conversation with you both. I mean, we're always interested in building bridges with other folks who are working in this issue area, who are new to it. Um, you know, I think we recognize our own limitations on who we are, who we represent, and that we need more diverse voices. So we welcome others to join our coalition and help deepen these conversations. And what's the name of the coalition, Laura? I don't know if we have a formal name. Um, <laughs> I don't know, Stephen, have you come up with one? No, I don't think we have a formal one yet. We haven't done any of the administrative bureaucratic uh, steps <laughs> yet. But uh, no, I want to second what Laura says. We are this. I mean, the, the path to racial equity and equitable community engagement is a long, windy, hard one. And um, we are definitely open and looking for re we have resources to support community partners. And so please reach out to myself or Laura. Um, and I want to thank all, all the people who are doing that community work. This is a, uh, a city that institutionally does not seem to have supported community organizers. And so those who are out there grinding and doing the community organizing, I just want to shout you out and thank you and try to lift your voice up as much as I can. So thank you. Well, thank you all for being on the show today. This has been a lovely conversation. Hopefully it will continue in lots of other ways. Again, this is a Racial Equity in Richmond, the web series. And we've had Stephen Wade and Laura Dobbs on our show today. Thank you all so much for your time, energy, wisdom, perspective, and really the important uh, perspectives and voices that you all are lifting up, but also the work that you do every day. Y'all have a good one. Thank you all for viewing. Bye-bye. Thank you.